Welcome to the Gift of Life podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. I am Nala Schwab. Coming up on the Gifted Life today. Pig to human organ donation. We'll be talking to the people on the forefront of this groundbreaking research. And we're also going to talk about resilience. When we face difficulties, resilience can be a roadmap where we can come out stronger and adapt to our difficulties. I love it. All that and more right here, The Gifted Life. Hang with us. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, some amazing news. Our jaws are still dropped by this news, but just to fill you in on some background, in 2021, a University of Alabama at Birmingham medical team transplanted two pig kidneys into a brain-dead human recipient. So obviously a major step toward future pig kidney transplants to people with kidney failure. So just that is like, wow. But everything that went into it to make that happen is incredible story in itself. So Alan Spriggs joins us now. He's the program manager of authorization development for Legacy of Hope. Alan, we appreciate you. You're joining us. We've been anticipating um, getting to sit down and pick your brain about how all this played out. So thanks for joining us here on The Gifted Life. Sure. And thanks for having me. So Alan, this is Joey. I, I was uh, curious you know, this is something that we had no idea here. And I know you guys are in Alabama, just mm-hmm. a couple states away. And I, I communicate often with Christy uh, Cahey there, who's kind of, kind of my counterpart. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden I hear about this, or I read about this, right. you know, in the news. I'm like, oh, my goodness. What? So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about the backstory, about how you guys kept that on the wraps and and, uh, and how it all started? Sure. Um, for sort of obvious reasons. Um you know, you have to sort of be careful um, what's put out there, you know, early and um, things like that. So really within the leadership team, it's something that we discussed a little bit um, after, you know, our executive team had worked and collaborated with UAB and the surgeons there um, sort of trickled down to the rest of the leadership team as far as preparation and, and starting to look into what this would actually look like as a program. Um, and really, I think there's a lot of um, you know, mental preparation aspects, sort of, right. of what are these conversations going to look like? What families um, are you going to consider for the project? And, you know, those different things. So um, it was good to have a little bit of preparation, knowing that it was coming. Of course, um, you sort of wanted to keep it under wraps from, you know, the majority of the group, um, just for that little bit, that that sort of opening time frame. And, um, and so it was just, you know, it was communication within our group and just making sure we were sort of holding each other accountable as far as that kind of thing. Um, and so that was pretty smooth from that standpoint. So, you know, of course, you know, we're talking about xenograph transplant and we're talking about, you know, transplanting a, a pig's organs into a human. Wow. So you can't just go, you know, you can't, you know, these, these research projects take some time. You can't go from kind of preclinical small stuff to all of a sudden we're jumping into transplanting someone who's on the wait list. So how did you guys decide to transplant 
into a brain dead patient who are generally considered donors? Sure. Um, it was, and, and I'm, that's a great question because from the very beginning, um, and, and I'm sure, you know, working with OPOs, you're aware, you know, there's a delicate balance in every single organ donor, potential organ donor is critical. It's life-saving um, um, or it could be life-saving, of course. And so we had to protect that process until we got to really the, um, the VCA uh, portion of it um, because really we were looking for a potential donor who is really medically unsuitable to actually be an organ donor. Um, you know, a patient that had been ruled out for some type of past medical history or what have you, you know, maybe a cancer diagnosis or something like that. So somebody who would be um, declared brain dead, of course, um, in a lot of cases maybe registered already because that would uh, at least help um, the intention part of the program. Um, but you wouldn't be actually risking an organ donor case. Um, and, and, you know, there's several reasons there um, why that would be so important, but it was really in our initial cases, that was the type of potential donor we were looking to identify. Um, now, it did turn out that on this particular case, um, he was still a potential um, renal donor. Uh, other organs had been ruled out at that point, um, but he was still a potential renal donor, and yet, um, he fit the profile and we were a little unsure because of some um, other, you know, historical past medical history things and um, some other clinical picture. We were a little um, unsure if, if there would be an organ place for transplant. So we went ahead and considered him for the xenotransplant program. So lots going on. I mean, I, I can hear it and I can feel like all of this, these things are happening. And then you would have to get the consent of this family. So we've done a little bit of research. We've watched these news clips. So we know it's the family uh, of Jim Parsons. We know that he was a registered donor. We know that he uh, was hurt in a, a dirt bike crash. That's something he loved to do, but he was declared brain dead. Right. And then what are those conversations and, and when do you approach and does that look the same um, as, as a normal approach uh, when you're going into it? So take us down that road. Well, in this case, uh, <clears throat> again, to reiterate, he was already an organ donor case that was sort of on our profile. And so our family support coordinator had already worked with the family. Um, they were in support of his registry to be an organ donor. He had been declared brain dead. Um, but and then, you know, at that point is where because of medical suitability, other possibilities were being lost and we sort of identified him as this candidate. And so I worked with the family support coordinator, um, explained the program to her and let her know that at that point it was a little bit under wraps, but um, I did want to, I wanted her opinion and we wanted um, her to share the family dynamics. And, and first of all, did she think this would be a positive thing for the family uh, moving forward? Um, what was their sort of frame of mind. Um, so again, we stepped back and they were still thinking organ donor mode mm -hmm. um, at that point. And so we were trying to keep both um, possibilities existing. And so um, initially our coordinator, our family support coordinator had said, you know, they were uh, frankly a little bit frustrated a little bit with the process timing 
um, and things like that, which is very natural in the order of business we do, of course. Um, you know, that's probably 50% of potential organ donor families or organ donor families are, you know, have some type of time, you know, just trying to make arrangements and set things up and very natural issues, of course, for anyone who has lost someone that they love. So, um, so we went back and forth and I explained this to her. I said, well, you know, I'd like to like to have a conversation with this family um, about participating in the Xeno transplant program. Um, if they're interested, um, I said, you think about it for a few minutes and then let me know because you know the family, I don't. And mm -hmm. what we want is we want a positive experience for this family. If you think it's anything that's going to add in any way, you know, a, a negative um, connotation to the participation that they already have in the program, we don't want to do that. Um, you know, our donor families are precious to us and precious to all OPOs. And, and so we want to make sure that this is going to be a positive for them. And she, she called me back just a couple of minutes later and she said, you know, I thought about this for a second. Um, she said the the wife or ex-wife actually, um, which I think is a unique and really great part of the story, was the uh, spokesperson for the family, even though they had been divorced. Um, she said, um, let me have a conversation, um, you know, with her. And then we talked about that. We said, well, how about I have the first conversation with her and I'll let her know that you and I had talked. Um, you sort of introduced her to me just through conversation. So um, I did call um, the ex-wife of Mr. Parsons and had a conversation and explained that to her, explained the program to her. And it was difficult um, to be 100% honest with you. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had conversations about donation with families many times over the years, but this was something a little bit different. Um, and so, you know, we had, we had, put together a little bit of a, a plan with the surgeons that what I would do is primarily talk to the family about participation and really what could be a groundbreaking research project without sharing most of the details. We felt that the, the clinical details related to, you know, where the kidneys were coming from and what all that would look like and everything would be probably better coming from the surgeon. And so my initial conversation um, with the donor family was just that, you know, we look like we're, we may be running out of options as far as organ donation. Um, you know, from what you shared with our family support coordinator, um, this is a very generous person, you know, had, we of course know that he had registered himself and they were already, you know, working through the organ donation process. Um, and there may be something else out there. And I did, I let her know that this would be, or have the potential to be very revolutionary and groundbreaking and that they would be, you know, one of the first to participate. And, um, you know, she's a little bit of a quieter um, uh, person. Um, and so I could tell she was reflecting a little bit. And then she said, you know, something along the, along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, um, he would have liked to have done that. That's something he would have said yes to. Um, she did say, let me talk to his kids. Um, he has teenage, I believe teenage, well, young adult children, several of them. Um, she said, let me have a conversation with them. And I said, if you'd like, you know, we could come and talk to you or um, what have you or explain things to the kids and, and things like that. And she said, well, let me just have a brief conversation with them. Um, but I think we'll, we'd like to talk to the surgeon and get all the details. And so that we sort of did it a step by step. 
uh, process like that. She called me back and she said she'd like to talk to the surgeon, that they're definitely interested. And so that's when we uh, connected her with Dr. Locke on a three-way telephone call um, between herself, myself, and Dr. Locke. And Dr. Locke explained the process. She was wonderful. Um, she said, I'll come up there and meet you, you know, drive to you or, you know, you can come down here, whatever works best for you, or we can do it over the phone. Um, and they were they were energized by it, um, you could tell. Um, it was something that meant a lot to them pretty quickly. And so they were on board at that point. What were some of the questions that they had? Was it just curiosity like us? What does this mean? Or were there any trouble yeah. spots for them? Like, what was that looking like? It was a lot of, um, and it was a lot of what you would anticipate, you know, um, how's this going to work? How long is this going to take? You know, um, where is he going to be? And those, all those things were just so different. Um, you know, usually we're, it's the opposite. We're talking about how we could minimize time and how we could get to the, you know, funeral portion, the postmortem care and all those kinds of things, um, sort of as quickly as we can. And this was, extending this process um, and what originally was possibly up to a week um, and, and having the patient brought to our uh, recovery center in Birmingham. Um, and and once we had all those conversations and Dr. Locke had all those conversations, um, Mrs. O'Hare, her name, the ex-wife, she was the conduit. She was the spokesperson for the family. So almost every conversation we had, she turned around and had a conversation with his his children, his legal next of kin, um, and we sort of went through the process that way. That really speaks to Jim and, of course, the family's generosity to go to shift that thinking. Because I, I again, I've been I've been in the industry for twenty years, and I completely understand families. You know, as as you mentioned earlier, the they're ready to, to move on with the next steps. You know, they're ready to go into the, the you know, funeral home planning and have the friends, you know, arranging all that to take place, family coming in, things like that. So to, to then shift from, you know, that thought process to, okay, now we have to wait an additional possibly week. That's, it's pretty amazing of them to be thinking, you know, of, of all, first to be thinking of all, you know, saving other lives and then to shift that to be thinking, wow, this is, uh, you know, we'll, we'll still stay in for this amount of time. Sure. And, and I'll tell you the one thing to me, it had, um, as far as a human interest story, a little bit of extra, um, I don't know, maybe emotion, um, maybe emphasis on, what donation does, you know, one thing that I've, I've always tried to help teach our staff through the years is, you know, when you have a family that's maybe separated, maybe there's divorce or maybe they're angry at each other. Um, you know, some families are just very fractured. You might have, right. um, as you all know, you know, you might have a bunch of people um, on this side and a bunch of people on that side. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you even sense that one person is saying no to donation, you know, really because the other person is saying yes. And, you know, you're, you're sort of working through those things um, so that no one makes a decision based on, you know, that type of emotion that they're going to regret a little bit later. And so to me, you know, we're always trying to talk to families about, hey, you know, this is the one time this is about the person that's laying in that bed right now. 
Um, and, and I understand, you know, that it's very difficult and, you know, we could see some divide here, but donation is the one thing that brings people together, at least for this little bit of time, you know, where we all need to sort of unite and get to get together and think about what's in the best interest of that person that's laying in the bed there. What would they want? What would they say? What would they do? And so this family was very unique in that we're actually not even talking to the legal next of kin. We're talking to the ex-wife. Um, and, but, you know, legally we're, you know, we're covering everything. We're going through our, the motions and everything's recorded and being signed and all those things. But we were primarily speaking to the ex-wife of the donor. And yet she was so professional. Um, and so, um, she just made it happen. You know, she just made it happen. She knew the type of person that he was. And even though, you know, their relationship didn't work out, ultimately, she was also advocating for her adult children and what they would want. Um, and so, you know, she did it beautifully. And later on, they became more a part of the process. And then they became part of um, the, the news conferences and those types of things. And you could see the impact it made on them as well. What an amazing mom taking care of her, her, her kids, knowing, amazing. knowing what, what, you know, how broken they were and, and still taking charge in that situation. And I'm glad you said it that way because you're exactly right. That's what she was doing. She was mm-hmm. being a mom, you know, and, and a, a wife, even though yeah. she was an ex-wife. Yeah. You know, she was, she was putting herself in that position because somebody needed to be there. Yeah. Um, and she stepped up and she was a hero that day too, in my mind. They they all were. What were the emotions like when all of a sudden now you've got urine, you know, now the kidneys are working and you can actually, you know, that's the thing about kidneys as opposed to the liver. Liver, you can't really tell. It stays inside, sure, right? Sure. But, but the kidneys, you see when the kidneys are working yeah. and all of a sudden now you've got Jim and uh, with with functioning kidneys from a pig mm-hmm. so what was that what that looked like well i tell you <laughs> it's um it's fun to talk about this a little bit about such a serious subject but you see how much impact it made on the people and that that does make it you know a wonderful thing it's hope um, for so many to go along sure sure wow. absolutely and so um with the way we had set things up um dr Locke from uab felt it was very important that we communicate with the family each day since their loved one was going to be under our care at our facility in Birmingham. Um, and, you know, we wanted to make sure we all thought it was very important that it was the three of us that talked. And so I would call uh, Miss O'Hare every day at a certain time. And then I would three-way add Dr. Locke in and we'd get an update from Dr. Locke about how things are looking. And so she took us through those steps each day, each morning. Um, and yeah, it was okay. We've we've cannulated. We've gone through the process. So far, everything looks good. The next morning is um, just like you all had said. There's urine now, you know, and this this is working. And we're we're taking an ultrasound of his heartbeat, you know, um, from that process. And um, it was, and you could hear each step. You could hear maybe a little bit of silence, like. Uh, Miss O'Hare was sort of thinking and processing, and then you could just tell how, what it, meaning it had to her um, and how much it meant to her and how much it was going to mean to her family once she shared those things. So um, I think that daily communication was um, 
was amazing. And I think it was great for the family and um, all the way through, really, through the entire process. Any communication, we kept it between the three of us um, throughout the process, even down to um, having met at our facility um, and and Dr. Locke and um, some of the other staff there at UAB and myself and um, Ms. O'Hare met at our facility there in the office um, to exchange some things and, and just to meet and that was at the end of the process and have some of those forms filled out and things like that for for opportunities like this um and so it was it was a great process all the way through um and it really i think benefited um everybody that was involved i'm just in awe of the the family um i work out in the community so just simply talking about death people are just scared um, but Jim had already made that decision. He was a registered donor, so they didn't have to worry about that. But this was new, unchartered waters. I'm sure they had lots of questions like what's going to happen. So when you see interviews with them now, the videos that um, I'm sure you guys were a part of and helped push out, um, those, those children are so proud. And they're like, look at this legacy of um, hope that he's providing um, to help fight this organ shortage like our dad. And um, so that kind of resonates with me um, because it was uncertain at the beginning and sounds like a good thing, but I think now they're kind of seeing those ripple effects, would you say? Sure, absolutely. And and uh, to take a step back real quick, I, I, I think it would be a mistake not to add, you know, there were bumps along the way because it was the first mm-hmm. of this particular program. You know, we kept running in things. I'd have to call her, you know, sometimes multiple times in a day and say, okay, well, no, this is actually the form, you know, that they want um, for oh, yeah. the funeral home or for death certificates. And, you know, this is where um, we're going to uh, send the body and, you know, up, oh, no, that form was the wrong one, you know, just those kinds of things going back and forth. Um, you know, there was some of that. I, th- I think, you know, that's involved in a lot of new processes in the sort of field that we're in. Um, and really in the medical field in general. Um, but the big thing was all the, the major parts, the, you know, the legalese and all those kinds of things were very meticulous and taken care of. So it was really just process of when do we do this or, you know, how do we do that and who do we talk to on this one? And you think you have everything completely worked out before you walk into your first one. Um, and you know, you see later on, and it was not it was it was not new to me. Um, I was glad that I participated. Um, I was able to participate in a lot of um, hand transplant activity and things like that. And my past experience, where you know some of the things were brand new, you know, and so um, I sort of anticipated some of those rough patches. Um, and so I think that was, I, I think it made it okay that I could call and talk to the family and say, you know, I think this is okay. This is normal. You know, I sort of, I haven't seen this particular project, but similar projects in the past where, you know, um, this is part of the benefit of being one of the first, you know, it's going to be once we get you through it and you get us through it um, and you get the sort of the pride and the, the legacy part. You know, that's what this is really all about is the legacy part for Mr. Parsons and for the family. And um, once you get to experience that, you know, then you'll see, you know, that all these other things were just things you had to work through. You talk about legacy, you know, and we we, we talk about legacy often with organ donation and, and transplantation, obviously. 
And this is such a different type of legacy, right? So it's, it's, you know, normally we'll, you know, we'll send them letters and, and let them know that their loved one was able to save three or four, you know, five lives through donation. And in this situation, Jim may be leaving a, a legacy of hundreds of thousands, you know, or Amazing. a million, you know? Amazing. Yeah. And, and they, they got that early on, which is, I think, um, I think Dr. Locke did a great job sort of presenting that probably better than anyone else could have. Um, and they got that. It was important. They were, they were working for him, you know, which is really a cool thing to see the, his family was working for him after he had already passed on. Um, you know, they thought it was important because, you know, they, they did see it as a legacy thing. And so, and it is, it will be, um, and like you said, for, for how many people, you know, will will we ever even know how many people right. that this affects? So amazing. Um, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the same thing we, we would share with any potential donor family because they're all making an unbelievable impact is, you know, you're going to look back whatever date it is, you know, you can look at today's date and say, you know, this is the day you lost your son or your mom. You know, we can't change that. 10 years from now, you're going to look back on this day and it's always going to be the day that you lost your loved one. Um, but can we add something to try to help feel, fill that hole in your heart? Um, you know, to maybe try to help you heal a little bit and things like that. And, and this was very much the same for this family. So. And then as far as laying Jim to rest, was that all normal um, as the family wished? Like if they wanted an open casket, were they able to, to do that? Were all those steps um, the same? Absolutely. Except for an extension, of course, of yeah, time. Yeah. And, and it was not the full week. Um, they, had, they had the information uh, that they needed after a few days. Um, and then, yeah, it was, um, you know, working with funeral home, uh, making those arrangements for transportation. Um, you know, organ donation is, is, you know, it's very important for the public themselves to realize it's not something that's going to preclude from having a open casket viewing if that's what a family would like. Um, it's not something that would of course, be a financial burden to the family. Um, you know, those things are taken care of um, outside of, you know, the, the actual treatment of the patient. Um, but anything related to the donation process or this process um, was is not something that the family is going to have to worry about either. So very similar. Um, it sort of reverted back to, you know, an organ donor case once once the actual clinical part was over. So amazing. I think we could talk to you all day and, and pick your brain. We are going to continue this conversation. Um, Alan, we're going to have um, Dr. Locke and one of your counterparts, Drew, on our next podcast to kind of go more into the science of how this all came to be, all thanks to, to Jim Parsons um, and saying Absolutely. yes and his family. So thanks so much for your time today. Well, you're all very welcome. I appreciate it. All right. More to come. On the Gifted Life podcast, we take a moment for mental health. Yeah, Nyla, what do we have on tap for today? Oh, today is one of my favorite words, resilience. And if I try to say it too fast, too many times, <laughs> I will get done died. All of so, us, yeah. yeah. And backwards. So it's, it's just, it's a great word. Um, 
And I think that a lot of us do it and we don't even realize we're doing it. So unless you can really name it, then you can't call on it later when you need it. Mm -hmm. So resilience, if you want a, a, you know, dictionary term, uh, what it is, is it's the ability to recover from or adjust. Um, I think Webster's uh, Dictionary says from being crushed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at times, Mm -hmm. like what we deal with, we see where people are crushed Mm -hmm. with tragedy when you lose a loved one. Mm -hmm. And so resilience is a way that you can come back from that, Mm -hmm. maybe stronger. So what we're going to do is really talk about what it is, what it's not, and then what you can do with that word. And so what it is, is if you want nihilist definition, let's say a GPS, because, you know, we all have this course in life where we can, um, where we want to go, but sometimes we're just hit with things that we didn't expect. Right. I always tell my kids that you got to be ready and you got to land on your feet because life happens. Life Mm -hmm. happens. How do you react to that? Mm -hmm. And I want them to be ready for that. And how do you teach that? Um, Still learning. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we're Mm -hmm. going to get to that because you can teach it. So that's exactly it. So in our roadmap, like we can make a wrong turn and the GPS tells us, it says, take a right, do a Mm U-turn. And and so sometimes in life, we need somebody kind of helping us to say, stand up, get out of bed, turn, push forward. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully... We may end up on a whole different route than what we expected, but we're still eventually going forward, Mm -hmm. and that's resilience. Uh, What it's not, it's not about being um, happy or faking it till you can make it. It's more about emotions are hard. It's difficult. So a resilient person is still facing difficult times. Um, It's not a personality trait. So it's not something that you're just born with, that you can't learn it or increase that skill. Um, so when we talk about, is it something that anybody can do? Yes. It's talking about the ordinary, not the extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So even the army, um, teaches what is called the master resilience, um, uh, training. And that's where they teach the upper level in the army so Mm -hmm. that they can go back and, and continue to teach that downward so that that becomes a stronger unit. I like that, yeah. So it's teachable. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that you need? There's four components that they suggest, which is connections, wellness, healthy thinking, and finding a purpose. And so you can really go in depth in all of that. Um, But we're going to keep it short. We're going to keep it simple. And when you think about just your connections, where is that? Where is that? What is that? That's asking for help. That's building your support system. Um, It's it's really understanding that we need community in our life. Uh, wellness, what is that? Well, wellness is really taking a routine and putting it in place. And for somebody who's lost somebody, when you ask, how are you doing? And, and sometimes that family will tell me, well, I got out of bed. And you think, that's routine, and you did it. Yeah. You got out yeah. of bed. Yeah. You know, And maybe later they can take a shower. Yeah. It's hard, but the fact that you're moving forward is is helpful. We have a, a friend who just lost a spouse, and and so I would I check in every day and just mm-hmm. say, "Are you? Did you eat today?" Because yeah. during one of our previous conversations, oh, I forgot to eat today, and I was like, "Oh, I can help. I can help remind <laughs> remind you to do mm-hmm. a small." But he's, I really just took didn't take the time to do it. Like I'm just trying to keep busy until I can get to bed, right? Yeah, just to make it through the day. Yes. Yes. And then, uh, you know, then there's the the wellness part. And we forget sometimes when we are um, in in a really difficult place that we still have to take care of our bodies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Take uh, care of you. Yeah. 
And, and, and that's hard to do. So you can remind somebody drinking water, just those little things. So I had a friend once who, um, she had skin cancer in her family. So she was just very smart about it. Wore a hat, wore her sunscreen, was covered from head to toe, went outside, um, never saw the sun. And then she started losing all her hair. She eventually lost all her hair. And after many, many, many visits, they found out because she was so covered, never got vitamin D, um. that um, it was actually, it, it cost her hair loss. Mm -hmm. So um, just those little things. So she had to get out in the sun 15 minutes a day without sunscreen. Well, so I mean, talk to your doctor before you do that. But that was her case. Um, Another thing that we want to talk about is just healthy thinking. And um, we we do have some control over our thoughts. Um, We have random thoughts that pop in our head. Uh, That doesn't mean they have to stay there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just if you're having some hard thoughts in your head, sometimes just standing up can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Uh, Walking into a different room can make a big difference. Calling a friend. So just changing those thoughts. (laughs) Yes, taking a shower (laughs) (laughs) makes a difference. And then finding a purpose. And I would say that's, I don't know, you know, something as simple as going to help someone else. So I talked to a gentleman who had lost his wife and we were talking about how he was doing. And he said, I'm just, I've just been having a hard time. And what I do is I go help someone else. And I said, well, like, what did you do? He goes, every day I find a way to help someone else. And he shared that that day he had gone to Walmart and when he was walking out, he thought, I'm so sad. So he said he opened the door and stood in the door and greeted people that came through. And somebody grabbed his arm, a sweet woman, and just said, thank you, sir. And he said, it just made me think my wife is proud of me. So, you know, we, we, there are little ways to make a, have a purpose. There's, um, all sorts of little things that we can do to help each other be resilient. And I see that with Lopa. I see it where I work. I see that our coworkers are helping each other. I see it with our families who say yes to donation and they're taking something very tragic um, and they're trying to make meaning out of that to help someone else and move forward. And then I see it with our recipients. I mean, our recipients who are so resilient to be so sick to get on the wait list and then receive that gift and then have to recover from it. And when they call to say, hey, how can I thank my donor family? And I don't know how, that's a great conversation to have. And um, it's about becoming stronger and more adaptable in our in our life. I like that. And I think a lot of our people just want to help. But how do you do that? So these are little simple things that we can all do for each other and for our families, too. Yeah. I like that. Oh, wait, can I add one thing to oh, it? Oh, I'd love it. Okay, so I have to end on a happy note. Yeah. And um, so there's a little uh, story. Uh, it's, a, it's a children's book, and it's called A Perfectly Messed Up Story by Patrick uh, McDonald. And so it's about a little boy named Little Louie, and Louie just wants to tell his little story. And everything gets gets in his way. He gets messed up. He can't, he stutters. He just, he struggles with it. And so he's getting so upset. And somebody says, stop, breathe, just relax. Anyway, he thinks about it and they said, just tell your story. And so he told it and he ended up really liking his story with all the imperfections, all the hiccups, and all the people that were with him smiling. He thought, I like my story. So our life is a lot about imperfection, and it's about coming together and working toward this kaleidoscope. I mean, our life is just little pieces that all come together to make something really beautiful. I like that. I was taking notes. Okay. I like that, Nyla. All right. Maybe you have a topic you'd like us to cover here at The Gifted Life? Just email us info at thegiftedlife.org.
In our question and answer segment, this came to me at a community event. Uh, we have a recipient who is out serving popcorn, greeting people, and just so happy and joyous to be out there. And then during the middle of the event, um, said, hey, can I ask you a question? And I'm yes, anything. And she said, so every year on my anniversary, I write a letter to my donor family, and I haven't heard back. Do I keep writing? And do you have any suggestions for that? So I thought that may be good for us to kind of talk about here on The Gifted Life. I think that is a great question. And, um, you know, I'm going to start with, I think it's going to be up to the individual. Mm -hmm. You know, it's whether they want to continue to write. Some, Some families may find that's very therapeutic um, or helpful is a better word. So yes, I would say if that helps you continue to write that letter, um, if you find that that's, it's difficult, then you know I think there are other ways to honor your hero. Mm-hmm. And we never know what's going on with the donor family, what's going on in their life. Uh, you can always refer a family back to our family services. And we try to tell all the families that we come in touch with and recipients, our family services department is set up to be that additional support, Mm -hmm. that resource for families. So we also try to get very creative, innovative. And so if there is a situation with a family member, we may try to reach out specifically to that transplant center. Maybe we can get some more information. Mm -hmm. Um, Some families are hesitant to write. Some families, some recipients just don't know how to say thank you, Mm -hmm. which is you know, because those two simple words don't seem to be enough sometimes when you're saying thank you for a life. Mm-hmm. So we can work with that family and we can work with the transplant center and um, because we don't have direct contact always with the recipients. Mm-hmm. So great question. Yes. We're always here to help. And I hope that kind of answers that question although it's a little general. Yeah, and I can uh, share a little bit more. Um, she said, I, I just hope that they are reading it to know how thankful we are and how special that loved one was. And they don't have to write back, but I feel like if I keep writing, maybe they'll keep reading and that's okay for me. And I just thought that was beautiful and something that we could all share and and use here. So that worked out well. Thank you. Thank you. Great question. We love hearing from you guys. If you have a question, give us a call 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today, we honor Javon Wiley. This comes to us from his mom. Javon chose to be an organ donor at 15 years old at our local DMV. The excitement of finally receiving his driver's license did not overshadow his desire to help others. He was asked if he would like to become an organ donor, and he turned to me and looked with a confused look. He asked what that meant. I explained that if anything happens to him, his organs would be used to save others' lives. Having a family member that has already received a kidney transplant, he immediately answered yes. Every time he showed someone his license, he pointed out that he had chosen to be an organ donor. That was one of the proudest moments, and as a mother, it was one of mine. And now we pause and say thank you to Javon for the gift of life. And that is episode 187, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can register anytime as an organ, eye, and tissue donor at Register Me. 
org. Thanks to uh, Alan Spriggs for coming on and, and sharing such an amazing story. Mm-hmm. And if, guys, if this interests you at all, please listen to our next episode. You're going to hear more about it. Part two. Stay tuned. The best place to find us, guys, at our website, thegiftedlife.org. Listen there and find links to listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating. It really helps others find our podcast. On social, you can like our page on Facebook. It's The Gifted Life Podcast. You can also follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at gifted life pod thanks for hanging out with us today we'll be back next time until then go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen have a good one this is a production of the louisiana organ procurement agency or lopa the gifted life is hosted by Lori Steele and joey boudreau our executive producer is kirsten hines Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 